Today is part three in our series of startup scenes across the Middle East. This time, we're looking at Egypt. A quick heads up, some of the recordings are in Arabic. Egypt is a very special place in my heart. I claim half my identity to this noisy, loving, energetic nation. A massive country of 90 million people, Egypt is home to some of the most influential media and creative exports to the rest of the Middle East. Music, film, and literature often start in Egypt, and known as well for raising a youth driven to make an impact, young Egyptians are starting revolutions to overthrow governments, they're starting businesses to tackle some of their most challenging social problems. Much entrepreneurial drive comes from necessity, and this is true across the Middle East. The region is experiencing one of the most severe youth bulges of our time, with 65% of the population under the age of 35 and historically high rates of unemployment, coupled with dissatisfying existing employment opportunities. Well, yeah, many people are turning to entrepreneurship to carve new paths forward. But then what breeds that necessity means we're also talking about a very difficult environment in which to build anything, let alone a business. I once asked a friend what the positives were about starting her business in Egypt, and she responded, There's nothing easy about starting anything in Egypt. And, and, and I can say this very openly, there's nothing. We have definitely chosen the more difficult path. We'll hear more from Dina later in the show. Today, we'll share with you the stories of a few entrepreneurs and what their experiences have been starting and growing their companies in Egypt. This is Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Let's start with an Irish transplant to Cairo, Con O'Donnell, who is one of the few individuals in the Egyptian startup ecosystem to go full circle, meaning he's built companies, exited them, and is now an active angel investor supporting newer entrepreneurs. Hi. Hi, Con. How are you? I'm fine. Oh, there you are. You're on video. So what brought you to Egypt so many years ago? Okay, so many, 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 many years ago, X amount of years ago, <laughs> I, uh, before I got to Egypt, I, I, I fell in love with a girl. And I was at the time in a seminary training to be a Catholic priest. And uh, I left that because I fell in love with a girl. And she went to university in Leeds studying law and I decided to follow her. And I enrolled in comparative religion and theology. When I went there, they said, you have to do something else. You have to take more credits and take another course, anything you like in the arts. And I went into a room that had about a thousand people in it, a hundred tables. Each one was a, a subject. And, and so then I saw a desk that only had three people in front of it. And I went there first. It was right down the end. So I said, what's this? And they said, this is Arabic. Arabic studies. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, Arabic studies. Never thought of it. Okay, sign me up. And at the end of that year, the professor came to me and said, look, you've got a good ear for the language. And the next year is a year in Cairo. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm sold on that. And then uh, I went back after my year here and finished my studies and decided to come back to Egypt and live here. And what made you make that decision? Well, at the end of four years degree in an English university, you speak Arabic like an idiot. Right? You did nothing. You, you, you speak Fusha. You can imagine such a thing. So, so I needed to come back. That, was, that had to be done. Khan is now fluent in Arabic, by the way. Uh, and I really liked it here as well. I had a very easy student time here where it was the time of the Iraq war, uh, the first one. Everyone left Egypt for some reason, even though we're a, few, you know, a thousand miles away. Everyone left Egypt and it was empty. Uh, it was just at the time when Sharm el-Sheikh was starting to develop just the first like, huts on the beach and as a diving place in Ras Muhammad. And so I spent four days of every week of the year down in, down in uh, 
in Sinai diving. So I, I thought that was going to be how my life would be for the rest of my life. And I thought that was, that was idyllic for me. But of course, when I got here, I realized I had to earn money. And uh, <laughs> that all went out the window. <laughs> <laughs> so he returns after university, realizes he needs to earn for a living, and starts a short career working for an employer. Unhappy working for somebody else, he leaves with two colleagues and they start their first company, a design firm. No experience and no idea what we were really, gonna, what we were really doing. We just started a company. We, we, it was ridiculous. I mean, it was in the days we had one, one of these one really big, heavy old Mac computers <laughs> back in the day between us. Okay. <laughs> we had one of those. And we didn't have a printer. So when we, our first client, when we wanted to show him the work, we would take the computer and the monitor because they were separate. And the, all the plugs and the cables and all that stuff, we'd just bundle it all in a cab and turn up the guy's office. That's funny. And uh, so that we wouldn't look so strange, we said that we have a new approach to this. We like to do the design in front of the client. <laughs> we want you to make the changes while we're here. We can do it in real time. And he was really impressed with this new, new way of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Over the course of the next decade, Khan builds multiple IT companies during the dot-com boom. We're talking the 90s, early 2000s here. From pocket entertainment guides to football prediction games to online car marketplaces and more. Many of these brands fell under the larger company Sarumadi, a digital creative agency that was eventually bought out by Vodafone, one of the first startups in Egypt to be bought out. What does the ecosystem for startups look like in Cairo? It's, a, it's an extremely exciting and, and, and uh, busy space in entrepreneurship. There's, it looks like everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. We have a lot of stuff uh, coming out in clean energy. Fintech, financial services kind of companies, uh, hardware, drone, robotics. We've got very good talent in that space and microprocessors and nanotechnology. So we've got a good health, uh, health one in nano that's early detection for uh, hepatitis C. We've got some really, really good entrepreneurs and we've got a lot of crap as well. You know, we've got like lifestyle entrepreneurs. I want to be the CEO at 20 kind of guy <laughs> without, without any substance to them. Is the lifestyle entrepreneur, is that something you see pretty often or you see people who really want to they're they're in it for the long haul the majority are in it for the long haul minority but they're they're kind of visible because they, they're just like event groupies you know they turn up to everything and i don't know when they ever do any work well they probably don't right <laughs> yeah you definitely have those types everywhere what is it like starting a business in egypt at rise up last year i was on the panel for angel investors three words of advice for entrepreneurs doing business in egypt so it was me and Habib Haddad and Hossam Alam and, uh, I don't know, Hela maybe. And, you know, Habib says, persevere, uh, uh, push yourself, uh, be excellent or something, you know. And it came to my turn. <laughs> and I said, apply Vaseline daily. <laughs> and Hossam turned to me and said, you did not just say that. <laughs> so I did. All right. So, yeah, it hasn't been an easy ride. Let's put it that way. We're making businesses, it's really tough because you should be one of the mafia. One of the mafia? Yes, definitely. Mafia? There's mafia? Yes, yes. Every industry has its mafia. Definitely. This is Mahmoud. He met me in a busy coffee shop in Alexandria, so pardon the noise in the background. Uh, I started working at a computer field when I was 10 years old. 10 years old? Yes, I was working before Windows, you know, there is DOS or something called DB4. At the time, there was no laptop. You know, if you know if someone knows someone who's laptop, we all visit him to see how a laptop works. Mahmoud is an Alexandria-based entrepreneur, which is kind of a rare thing because, as most people will tell you, the ecosystem for startups in Egypt is mainly based out of Cairo. Uh, I started software development when 
I was, I guess, uh, 16, and I entered, uh, I joined the School of Engineering. I paid no attention to the school. By this time, I was already working, so I failed for a couple of years. <laughs> and I spent seven years in the state of five years. Yes, but at this time, I was expanding my personal company. It was for hosting and web solutions. And by the end of school, I had a very, very big client. So I used to have uh, Holiday Inn from Saudi as my big client. I used to have... Uh, the ever entrepreneur. In 2012, Mahmoud started his current company, Bekam. Bekam is a price comparison site featuring over a million products across 250 websites for Egypt, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. Bekam has raised funds from the likes of the Mektoub founders, Jabbar, and a Switzerland-based investment firm. Just tell me more about what it's like to start a business. It's tough. Yes, it's very, very, very tough. Making businesses is really tough. Because it should be one of the mafia. We wanted to make something and become with mobile operators, and it took us about a couple of years to get a contact in Vodafone or Salat or Mubinir in Egypt. Years, you know, to enter the company and talk to someone. In Dubai, I contacted a couple of people through LinkedIn, in Do and in Salat, and two weeks later, I was meeting them in their offices. What happens here, people just tell you they just don't answer, they don't answer, they don't answer. Yeah. As long as you're not a friend or you're not a showy person that entering with your, the last brands and your car, they say, okay, now it's time to talk. Otherwise, no, if you're a startup or a small business, we don't have time for it. So if you're a small business, they don't care? No. Everyone only wants to do business with someone they know, so they prefer their own network and recommendations. So if you're new, totally new, it's very difficult to get a foothold in any business. On the other hand, it's uh, follow the leader uh, market. So if you convince BMW, you'll get uh, Mercedes and Audi and Volkswagen and whoever in terms of clients. And then you have infrastructural issues like traffic. You can only manage one meeting a day if you're if you know, first your meeting is across the other side of town because traffic is so damn snarly and bad. So you can't like in Jordan, you can get four or five meetings a day. You can move around in Beirut the same, but here one or two meetings a day it slows you down. Or issues like electricity cuts. Last year, some parts of the country faced six power cuts a day for up to two hours each time, and estimates report demand for electricity outbalanced available supply by 20%. When I have a Skype call with an investor, I tell him, please, yes, invest in a company that's in a very promising country, and we're doing a very good job, then the electricity went down. <laughs> so, you know, if I were him, I tell him, yes, please, let's invest in electricity first, then I will invest in your company second. How, how does it impact your business? How have you felt like all of these things? We're, we're trying to adapt. I mean, yes, we, we bought a couple of generators because to keep the internet up. And most of people are using their laptops. Yes, we were doing the best work. I think the, the biggest problem of doing business here is payment cycles. You know, 90 days. And of course, you're paying for everything. You get your money three months later. And I'm talking about the biggest companies in the world operating out of Egypt. So that's a killer. It's a killer for a small business. And everyone operates like that, unfortunately, because they take their cue from the top companies. They will pay eventually, but you might go out of business before before you do. I've been, you know, in bed in the morning, dreading going in because I'm going to have to stand in front of my hundred people and say, guys, I'm sorry, there's no salaries this month. Those of you who have uh, cars to pay off or rent to do, whatever, we, we will try to prioritize you to get you some money. Those of you who have school fees, we will try to prioritize you. Um, but there's not enough money for everyone this month. And those of you who can find other work, please go and find other work and uh, come back when everything's uh, fixed. Imagine going in, and that happened more than once. 
That sounds so, yeah. really, really so, difficult. Well, doing business in Egypt, no, it's not a walk in the park. It's really, really difficult, yeah. As technology startups, you also face difficulties in that while Egypt is a huge market with a huge population, not many are online to buy your stuff. Uh, I can open today a supermarket or a cupcakes and I know I will be profitable from the second day. Yeah? Yes. Why? Because people are going to buy cupcakes, they know if they want to buy desserts. People have no problem with spending on clothes or, or, or definitely food and desserts and so on. And that's why... Till today, Starbucks is expanding, which is very expensive for Egyptians. And you can all people are staying, which is very mad people, yeah. Some idiots, including me, by the way, because I say, yes, but, but I have my preference. But you are going to ask them now, use the internet to buy stuff. But I'm going to tell the people, which is a literate, maybe more than 50%, guys, about buying online. Okay. It's going to take at least four to five years. It does seem like there's nothing easy about doing business in Egypt. We've heard of challenges like electricity cuts, really terrible traffic, that you might not even get to talk with a bigger company if you're a startup, or that industries follow 90-day payment cycles, which may just kill your cash flow and business while you wait to receive your money. But we also have to balance these challenges with the fact that running costs in Egypt are really low. Salaries are low, setup costs are low. For example, you can hire a really talented developer for 4,000 Egyptian pounds a month, the equivalent of close to 500 US dollars. And you can fully license and incorporate your company for under 15,000 Egyptian pounds. You're running, you know, the running costs here are very, very low because the running costs, rents and salaries and so on, okay, it's very, very low. So you are just investing in long-term return. But in Dubai, it's totally different. It's very, very expensive. And the return most probably is much, much more shorter. Okay, but in Egypt, no, it's going to take a very long time. Yes, definitely. I think when you're not living day in and day out amongst challenging circumstances, like some of the ones we've heard about today, it's easy to romanticize how inhibiting these challenges can be. But the fact of the matter is, humans adapt. We're very adaptable beings, and it's the best among us who can find opportunities against odds. In fact, you're actually seeing an upswell of Egyptians who are starting social enterprises or for-profit businesses tackling social and environmental issues. And as we've heard, Egypt has its fair share of challenges from electricity to traffic to the more critical issues like illiteracy and extreme poverty, wherein, at last available 2011 estimates, 40% of the population lives on less than $2 a day. I feel like we have this emerging growth in, in entrepreneurs who are building business models around some serious societal problems. And it's one of the stories that I think we should be boasting about and talking about because it's something that I feel that we're becoming leaders in. This is Dina Sharif, whom we heard from at the very beginning of our show. Hi, Yuba. Hey, Dina. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Dina is co-founder of Ahead of the Curve, a social impact training program, venture fund, and advisory firm that is helping to nurture this growing culture of social entrepreneurship in Egypt and across the region. Like, always in the back of my mind, kept saying, I need to do my own thing, I need, but, you know, come up with excuses as to, yeah, but that's unstable, I need stability, I need blah, blah, blah. I got a lot of comments from friends saying, oh my God, now you're never going to get married. (laughs) You were already intimidating enough. In 2010, 2011, I'd taken a leave of absence from the Gerhardt Center, and uh, I went to start my PhD. And uh, then a revolution happened, and uh, my dad got really sick. And I kind of decided that 
I'm 38. And, you know, life is short. And if I really wanted to do this, then I just shouldn't do it. <laughs> what happened after the revolution is that a lot of young people, and when I say young, I mean, I would say between 40 and below, started thinking about how can they give back to society but outside of the context of an NGO. There had been a, a rise in the, in the number of youth who were going out and starting their own, who are building business models around building more sustainable societies as an alternative to the old development paradigm. What's the old development paradigm? Donor aid, charity, everything that wasn't working. <laughs> To give you a bit of context, according to most recently available data, Egypt was the number one recipient of official development assistance or donor aid in Africa in 2013, totaling 8 billion US dollars. I think in, in reality right now, a lot of young people don't have faith in the governments. They don't have faith in NGOs because they don't believe that it will lead to scale and they don't believe that charity is going to fix anything. So they take things into their own hands. But they also want to have a good livelihood. So they want to be able to make money and they want to be able to create jobs, but they're trying to merge the two. So you find people who are trying to do something that will fix a problem in society, but do that in a way that's uh, that's going to lead to a job-creating, profit-making entity that will fix a problem. The old way of doing things, relying on donor aid, for example, is not working fast enough. And so many Egyptians are taking it upon themselves to solve the problems they see around them. One such example of an entrepreneur is Gamal. Can you say your name for the... Uh, Gamal's startup, Biolek, helps you manage the challenge of traffic by letting you check the traffic on your routing to work or school through your mobile. It feeds off of live updates from the GPSs of driver's smartphones, as well as users' manual input to report accidents, checkpoints, or roadblocks. Biolek launched in 2010 and was taken aback by the overwhelming response to their app. We can see conversation between you and the founder, when we reach Alf, and for some reason Alf There was this debate When Gamal and his team finally launched, he passed out, having not slept for days for the work leading up to the launch. And that evening, when he went to play football with a team he'd never met before, as the players were warming up, he heard the other team telling each other, "Have you heard of this new app, Biolek?" He rushed home to check how many users were on the app. In the span of a few hours from launching that morning, there were 6,000 registered users on Biolik. Today, the app has over a million registered users, and they only operate in Cairo and Alexandria currently. It was, it was crazy, yeah. So that's a really good proof of concept. Uh, uh, <laughs> so you started in 2010? Yes, 10, 10, 2010. Okay, so 10, 10, 2010. Yeah, yeah, yeah that pure luck. I guess, no? <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, October 10th, 2010. Three months before the first revolution in Egypt in 2011. How did the revolution affect your business? No, but what happened is that we had a plan. Actually, when we got on Facebook, وتويتر وكده كان في بقى اويك ولا حاجه الانترنت وحشه قوي كانوا بيقفلوا بالذات على فيسبوك وتويتر فاللي حصل انهم يعني فجاه بيبل ستارتد اكشلي يوزنج ذا اب ان ديفرنت واي ويتش واز 
one of the usages, informal usages of the app was to gather up. And you'd find people uh, reporting with, the, and there is this march at this, and, and talking with each other. Uh, we were not encouraging it was really hard to, to maintain neutrality. It was really hard. We understood that, that even from our family, people that were not pro but we tried to be as professional as possible. We did not introduce a feature to do that. But we did not censor When the government shut down social media in hopes of quelling the protests, the Oleg saw new usages of their app, which they strategically chose not to formalize as a feature. But then other behaviors started to emerge from their users, for which they did see an opportunity to integrate as a formal feature of their app. Especially after the police withdrew from the streets. And this was, I believe, was like, so you don't like police, so there is no police. It was like a reaction to live in the jungle. And it was really a challenge for the people. Suddenly, it's not like, it's not anymore about is it jammed or is it empty, is it safe or is it not? And lots of rumors and. and, and people we, we, we saw the, the usage of the app people were, were trying to warn each other and, and this is when we introduced the feature خطر and it was this update it was really adaptable we did it we did it we needed this for those who use the app we needed to report danger and we needed to الحاجة الثانية اللي كانت كويسة جدا إنه فجأة أصلا the knowledge of يعني مثلا unlike the US ولا كده لو أنت عارف مثلا إن 911 ده رقم كذا عارف أنت you know all the emergency numbers by heart you don't خالص ولا أنا لغاية دلوقتي ولا أنا لغاية دلوقتي suddenly بقى أصلا كل دول they're not working and there are these hotlines for the army police فطبعا دول حاجة جديدة خالص حتى for those who know they don't know these numbers فwe introduced the خطر people could report on a road, like a status, and like this Elhani or SOS list, whereby from the app you can directly dial the. From the app you click on a button and you have all the emergency numbers from the police, from the, those who were working, the ambulance and everything. And it went, it went يعني, one of the things that boosted. يعني, I remember pre revolution, we were like a little bit stuck around the, let's say, 15,000. It was like a. We break the network and we open a bigger network. And it was this Yes, yes, yes. By responding to the needs of their users and servicing a real challenge for people, which was being able to determine which roads were safe and which weren't, what numbers to call in the case of an emergency, Beolik actually tipped their numbers. They had been stuck, and it was this new feature that attracted a much larger user base than they were able to before. I think why this episode in particular hits so close to home is that as a half-Egyptian, I constantly hear stories of how difficult it is to live in Egypt. I myself never have, though I do have countless beautiful memories from visits. And a recurring theme is that really talented Egyptians are leaving because of many of the challenges we heard about today. The same ones that apply to starting a business inevitably affect your day-to-day life. We'll be exploring this phenomenon in depth in an upcoming episode on Brain Drain, but for now, I want to leave you with this. Yes, there are difficulties to starting and growing a business in Egypt. As we've heard, there's nothing easy about it, in fact, but there's also very hardworking, intelligent people who are actively changing that reality, taking matters into their own hands and building businesses that tackle the problems broken systems have been unable to fix. 
doing business in Egypt is so difficult. Why do you stay? Hey, this is my home. <laughs> this is my home now. Even though I, you know, I don't have a green passport, uh, this is my home. When I go to my, where my parents are from, and I go to the UK, when I go there, I just want to come back to my home. I feel when I'm, you know, when I land in that brown zone, Cairo, noisy place, it's home. I think because definitely it's a big, a big market, and it's going to be very, very successful someday. Yes, and maybe it's not tomorrow. Maybe the day after tomorrow. It's okay. Look, Egypt is my country, so and this was started by Egyptians and. My employees are all Egyptians, and I will, you know, for me, it's very much about, obviously, you know, I could easily have taken this and started it out of Dubai, and I probably would have made a lot more money by now, and it probably would have been a lot easier. But I, I feel like I have a responsibility to build a business here, and to employ people here, and to show that this could be an alternative model that comes out of a country that people now perceive as negative. This concludes the latest Kerning Cultures episode. All sound design and original music is by Ramzi Bashur, and this piece is co-distributed by EgyptianStreets.com. We'll be taking a break from talking about startups for the next few episodes, and we have some great stories lined up for you in the coming weeks. Until next time.